This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Newberger, editor of Not Even Past, and today we're here with Brian Levac. Hi, Brian. Hi, Joan. Uh, Brian is uh, the author of many books on early modern Britain, and uh, especially on the history of witchcraft. And today we're going to be talking about a new book that he just published entitled The Devil Within, Possession and Exorcism in the Christian West. So uh, let's start off with demonic possession. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking actually about a belief that certain things happened, but it is a belief that the devil, Satan, or one of his subordinate demons entered into the body of a human being and controlled that person's physical movements and also their mental faculties. Mm-hmm. And the, there were various signs or symptoms of this invasion, because it really is an invasion mm-hmm. against the person's will. Uh, the person would um, usually have violent convulsions. Their limbs would become rigid so much so that they couldn't, let's say their legs could not be uncrossed, even when people tried to pull them apart. Uh, they would vomit uh, alien objects like nails and pins and stones and this type of thing. And sometimes they would even levitate, or at least these are all reports you have to understand. I mean, mm-hmm. this is what that we have narratives that they actually engaged in these activities. Then there were uh, what we might call uh, more verbal or, or linguistic symptoms of this invasion. And the main one is that they would start speaking in languages of which they had no previous knowledge. Mm-hmm. Or they would speak in a very, very unnatural, deep voice, which was interpreted as being the devil's voice. Or they would show contempt for sacred objects, um, or, and they would blaspheme. Uh, sometimes they went into trances. They would foretell the future. So in other words, it's a whole constellation of these symptoms. Uh, they didn't all exhibit the same ones, but those were the most, the most common ones of what we call the classic cases of possession. So these things all seem very bizarre to us, um, though they seemed more... Uh, natural at the time because people believed in possession. But um, today, uh, a lot of people have looked back and and assumed that there was some kind of medical disorder or mental disorder. But um, what what do you think about that? I mean, I certainly don't. I mean, I am not a believer, so I do not believe in the devil, um, and I don't believe that the devil or any spirit can enter into a human being. But the important thing is that the society that I studied, and I'm mainly concerned with the 16th and the 17th centuries, those people very much, a great majority of them, well, they almost all believed in the devil, and a great majority of them believed that uh, the devil could uh, enter into bodies, uh, human bodies, and control their movements and their, and their, their mental faculties. But, you know, uh, even and, and, and for those people, demonic possession made sense. It was perfectly understandable. Mm-hmm. But there were people then, and there certainly are people today, who would look at this type of behavior and say that, well, even though I might believe in the devil, I don't believe that this behavior is the result of 
that type of invasion. And they would be the people who would say that the, uh, the, the, the symptoms of possession were the product of some kind of physical or mental illness. And you get these people all the way back in the 16th and 17th century, but then especially in the age of reason in the 19th century and the 20th century, um, especially uh, among doctors and psychiatrists, this is the universal explanation of all of these cases of possession. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to um, show that those explanations might have uh, some place in understanding this really bizarre behavior. I mean, people did engage in this bizarre behavior. Maybe they were putting it on. Maybe they were faking it. Uh, and there are all sorts of explanations based on that. But uh, uh, nevertheless, the and, and sometimes the reports of this uh, activity were exaggerated. But Definitely. Even the people who are skeptical will say, yeah, the person really is acting in this really, very, really strange way in their convulsion. We can't uncross their legs and, and, and what have you. So what I'm trying to do is to show that those medical or natural explanations of possession um, cannot account for all the symptoms, and especially those symptoms that we might refer to as verbal or linguistic, or which had a religious dimension to them. But what, what I try to do is to explain uh, this, the, the, this bizarre behavior uh, by uh, showing that it is rooted in the religious beliefs and the religious culture in which these people live. So I'm restoring religious belief to this Mm-hmm. explanation. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. So if um, if it's rooted, if the behavior is somehow rooted in belief, but it's not um, necessarily provoked by some disorder, um, how do you explain what they're doing? Well, what I argue is that all of these people are, in a certain sense, actors. Now, it, they're not consciously acting. Some of them are. Some of them are deliberately um, uh, uh, fraudulent. They're, they're faking their possessions mm-hmm. so that they can get sympathy or they can get money uh, or that they can uh, accuse someone of having caused the possession and therefore be accused of witchcraft. But um, most, uh, you know, uh, most of them are unconscious actors and they're involved in what I refer to as a, as a sacred drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and the argument of the book is that they are all following scripts that are, I use this word, encoded in their religious cultures. Mm. Um, They read about or have read about other possessions, uh, or they've heard sermons about them, because this is a time when there's lots and lots of possessions. I mean, you have all these these pamphlets that are being written about Mm. them, Um, or uh, they may have heard about uh, possessions that took place in their community or in some distant uh, community. Um, uh, sometimes you have a, a group possessions. You have close knit communities like you know, convents, especially, and orphanages and small villages uh, in which many people get possessed, and the symptoms seem to spread almost like a, like a, an epidemic disease. It looks, it, that's why it looks like uh, uh, throughout uh, the, the the community. And in those cases, um, people have direct experience of other people supposedly being being possessed. And that is how they learn these particular scripts. In other words, they learn how demoniacs are supposed to act, and they act accordingly. They follow 
the script. Even though they might not be doing it consciously, nevertheless, they have that in their minds. And all that comes out of this religious culture. And mm-hmm. I argue that you can't fully explain this. I don't know if we could ever fully explain this bizarre <laughs> behavior, but, but, but you can't fully explain it um, without understanding this theatrical or mm-hmm. what people would call performative mm-hmm. uh, dimension mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of, of possession. So, and so there were differences between Catholic and Protestant yeah. um, possession? Yes. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the differences? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and really what you could say is that the scripts that these demoniacs are following are very, very different. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the purposes of the book is to say that you just don't have one single uh, type of, of possession, but that you have a very different ones. And they divide pretty much along Catholic and Protestant uh, lines. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and you see this not just in the symptoms that the demoniacs, those, that's the word we use to describe mm-hmm. these, to identify these people mm-hmm. um, that they use, but also in the exorcisms, which of course are conducted by priests and ministers of the different uh, confessions. And uh, one, of the, um, one of the clearest indications is that uh, demoniacs, because they're supposedly possessed by the devil and the devil is controlling their actions and their words is that they blasphemed. So, you know, they're rejecting the current religion. So if you have a Catholic demoniac, that person is going to um, a blaspheme against uh, the main features of Catholic culture and especially uh, against sacred objects. So, you know, if you present the person with the Holy Eucharist or something like that and you say this is the body of Christ, the person is going to reject it and start going into convulsions and fits and what mm-hmm. have you. Um, whereas a Protestant um, uh, uh, didn't accept the sacraments as such, uh, but what is important for Protestants is the Bible. I mean, that's the foundation of Protestant faith. So what you get in Protestant possessions is these Protestant demoniacs uh, saying, um, uh, uh, saying, oh, uh, uh, they go into fits if they hear the Bible. Or sometimes they would bring the Bible in and they take it, they throw the Bible down. So, so that would be one uh, reflection of this difference. Also, in the exorcisms themselves, mm-hmm. uh, the priest, the Catholic priest, would appeal to um, the saints and especially to the Virgin Mary. And by the way, even today in Catholic exorcisms, the main appeal is for the Virgin Mary, mother of God, to help out, in other words, to intercede for God, um, um, and get rid of these spirits. But the Protestants say, well, you know, they try to devalue the saints and mm-hmm. the Blessed Virgin Mary, and they say it's, it's only up to God. So we have to leave it completely to God, and that means you can't go through any of these rituals in which you pray to the saints and the Blessed Virgin Mary, but in fact, you have to um, just pray and fast. That's the only thing you can do during a Protestant exorcism. And hope that God, in his wisdom and his mercy, really, mm-hmm. is going to drive the evil spirit out. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, very often that didn't happen <laughs> in, in, in Protestant exorcisms. And, you know, they're also... So they were psychic. less successful than a, Catholic? A, a much less successful. And they admitted this. You have all the Protestants saying, why is it that the, the Catholic exorcisms <laughs> are working and the Protestant ones aren't working? Well, I mean, it all has an it has a lot to do with the assurance that the demoniac feels that something is being done. Mm-hmm. And when they're pronouncing rituals and they're praying and they're doing all this stuff and, you know, but wrapping the stall around the person, uh, 
then they feel, well, you know, maybe the, the, the demon is being driven out. Because a lot of this is psychological. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're just sitting there, you're waiting for God to come. <laughs> you know, maybe that just doesn't work. And the Protestants... It doesn't work. We, it's not as good a script. Exactly. It's mm-hmm. just not that, not not that, that effective. Uh-huh. And that explains why there's this... I mean, I did... You can't really do a statistical study because we just don't have really hard evidence. The way we do in witchcraft prosecutions mm-hmm. about how many demoniacs there are. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, based on the reports that we have, and we have hundreds of these cases of possession, and we have the sermons that relate other ones, mm-hmm. that uh, probably uh, at least 10 to 15 times more Catholic demoniacs than mm-hmm. Protestant demoniacs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like witchcraft in, in Western mm-hmm. Europe, were there more women or more men demoniacs? Uh, 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 or well, is it, it, no, actually, uh, most people say that it's fairly evenly divided. My... Uh, uh, selective research, and again, we have just small databases, is that just as in witchcraft, an overwhelming majority of the demoniacs were females. Mm -hmm. But unlike the witches who tended to be old um, and very often widowed um, Mm -hmm. and excluded from the community and dependent upon the community, the the, the demoniacs, the Catholic demoniacs, tended to be young women, very often nuns Mm -hmm. um, in the convents. And um, they experienced um, psychological problems, uh, very often connected with their sexuality. You don't get that at all in the Protestants. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I keep looking for Protestants who were uh, expressing their sexuality. No, I mean, the Protestants were disobeying their parents or they were playing cards or they were dancing, but there was no, there was no sex there. And that's because Protestant culture was concerned with all a whole range of, 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 um, of, of sinful activities. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They, yeah, yeah, they, that, exactly. And some of them were really minor. We'd say, "Yeah, this is crazy." Every <laughs> one. Not worth exactly. dancing with the devil. Well, over. Well, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But but the thing is that they they had. Uh, Protestants generally don't distinguish between mortal sins and venial sins. They don't have a hierarchy of sins, whereas the Catholics do. And right at the top of the list are sexual sins. For the, so that is why you get sexuality in, in all of these, or not all of them, but many of the Catholic possessions. So, okay, aside from the, aside from the social and individual gender issues, this was a period when uh, religious institutions were undergoing major transformations, right, right a major yeah. conflict. Does that explain why there were so many possessions during this period that somehow yeah. reacting against the changes in the yeah. church? How, how does that I mean, play I, th- out? I think especially in the Catholic communities, they were determined to stem the tide of Protestantism mm-hmm. uh, by uh, staging possessions or especially exorcisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, which they said would prove that the Catholic Church was the one true church. And the mm-hmm. way they did that was to display the Holy Eucharist, you know, the Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. And if they could drive out a devil, or if the exorcist could drive out a devil by displaying the host, that would prove that, um, that Christ was really present and that therefore the Huguenots or the Calvinists in, in France uh, were part of a, a false religion. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a, a, a the exorcisms become a mode of propaganda. Now, of course, you could also say that um, just the religious uh, culture of the early modern period, because it was uh, uh, characterized, or the religious cultures were characterized by this conflict between uh, Protestantism and Catholicism, all of that uh, involved a heightened uh, consciousness of the devil. 
Mm -hmm. And therefore, people are thinking of the devil. And that is why communities, when they saw a person who may be having fits or convulsions, which is usually the way it started, uh, they would say, it's the devil. Because they know that the devil is around. A lot of people are thinking that it's the time of the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. um, and the Antichrist is appearing. And, of course, the devil is especially active. And this is true of the Protestants. You read all of these, um, all of these treatises in which they uh, uh, talk about the fact that these are the last days. They're getting ready for mm -hmm. the, uh, the second coming, the last judgment, the, the rule of Christ probably for a thousand years of millenarianism. And um, they, they, they argue that this is, uh, that the, the, the incidence of possession is going to increase mm -hmm. at this time. And they go back to scriptures and they find, mm -hmm. and of course they also go back to uh, the period of Christ in which uh, that was the first coming. And of course, that's when the apocalypse was written. And um, there are all these scriptural quotes, especially in Revelation, about the devil being active at this time. Mm -hmm. So I think that it has a lot to do with both the reasons why communities would think that these people were possessed. And it also, and probably even more important, would explain why the ministers, both Catholic and Protestant, would uh, see this, these possessions as a sign of this uh, apocalyptic uh, expectation, this mm -hmm. eschatology, as we would call it. So I think that has a lot to do with, mm -hmm. with why you get um, uh, so many cases at this time. And, and do you have a sense of why they began to die out after the 17th century? Yeah, I think basically um, people... Uh, begin to lose faith in... I mean, they don't necessarily um, uh, abandon their beliefs in spirits, although some of them do. I mean, you enter into what we call the age of reason. Mm -hmm. And this is not true for most of the people, uh, but it's certainly true for the educated elites. So even within the clergy, mm -hmm. uh, you have uh, people saying that, well, there might be spirits, but they certainly cannot intervene in nature or in the people's uh, lives. And of course, you end up getting, you know, deists who say that there's, there, there are no spirits um, who actually, uh, either good or bad or God, can intervene in the, the normal operation of the laws of nature. So I think that, so, so even though you would have cases that might have turned into cases of possession, you have the ministers who will look at this and say, well, that's, that's, that's not a case of possession because we know that the devil doesn't do this anymore. Oh, so, so they're rejecting yeah. the whole script, really, the whole, exactly, the whole drama. Exactly, uh -huh. exactly. The That's script, so the script yeah. is going, yeah. Yeah. And, and you write that uh, at the end of the book that, um, other than the 16th and 17th century, that uh, it's really the late 20th and 21st century we've seen Bizarrely, I guess. Oh, yeah, it's um, coming back. A rise of it's, possession. It's coming back. I mean, it's yeah. all of yeah, this decline, just these rare cases. And then you, and this is a lot to do with a group of very active celebrity exorcists, uh, especially in Italy, where the one of the exorcists has performed 70,000 exorcisms. <laughs> and uh, there's one in Latin America who's done something similar to that. The other place is Poland, where there are mm -hmm. lots of exorcisms. What I argue is that, yes, there is the revival of this. And of course, we have movies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, but um, 
there's a difference because I still do not see the type of classic possession cases mm-hmm. such as I have described. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get these people vomiting pins and you don't get them <laughs> or having their, <laughs> or, that's right, eels and chamber pots. Right. It was one, I mean, they, they really go overboard with this <laughs> person vomiting 24 gallons of blood every day. Well, of course not, but still, I mean, I'll probably, probably, the person probably had stomach problems <laughs> and probably spit up a little bit of blood, and that's the way it got exaggerated. But you don't get that. Basically, it seems that there are people with minor uh, medical problems, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes minor psychological problems, and the exorcist drums up business and says, I can help you. Mm-hmm. And that's why you get literally thousands of these cases. But it, it's just not the same as the early modern period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Thank you very much. Oh, you're it's welcome. Very yes. interesting. Thank mm-hmm. you. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.